0: and welcome to Ipsa a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Matt Teichman, a full-time lecturer for the Humanities Corps at the University of Chicago and the host of the Elucidations Philosophy Podcast. His scholarship focuses on the philosophy of language, feminist philosophy, functional programming, and type theory. We will discuss his work on the meaning of generic statements and their implications for applied ethics.
1: So welcome to the podcast, Matt. Thanks so much. It's great to be here. I'm a big fan of your show.
0: Well, as you know, your show, Elucidations, was one of the inspirations and and models for, for this program and for me starting podcasting myself. So it's especially exciting for me to have you on the show uh, because your approach to podcasting uh, with with philosophers was really influential on on the way that I thought about have been thinking about uh, how I wanted to interview legal scholars. So I just wanted to to say thanks a lot. It's it's been a real inspiration for me.
1: You are totally making me blush, and uh, now I'm wondering how much reciprocal fanboying we can get away with uh, before the listeners decide to murder us.
0: <laughs> well, well, well. Let let's start with some substance then. In the project that you're working on, you're discussing when generic statements and why generic statements can be offensive. But I I think that in order to really understand the nature of your project, we have to understand in a formal sense what you mean by a generic statement and why they're so kind of difficult – to understand philosophically. So maybe you could walk us through sort of what we mean when we talk about a generic statement and why have philosophers of language found generic statements so problematic?
1: Yeah, so generic statement is a bit of academic jargon, but um, you can think of it intuitively as a loose generalization as opposed to a strict generalization. And the example I like to give here is birds fly. So birds fly is the most boring statement in the world. Nobody would ever dispute that birds indeed do fly. And if you were talking to a little child and trying to explain to them what a bird was, you might very well say birds fly as part of the explanation of what a bird was. But there's a weird thing, which is that there appear to be some exceptions to it. So ostriches are birds, and they don't fly. And penguins are birds, they don't fly. And emus are also birds that do not fly. Now, if it was just sort of like a strict generalization, if there was even a single counterexample, it would have to be false. But with a statement like birds fly, strangely, we hear about ostriches and penguins and emus, and we don't retract our previous belief that birds fly. Somehow, these counterexamples are like permissible. They can be counterexamples to the generalization that the generic statement is making, They can be counterexamples to birds fly without making it false that birds fly. And from a certain point of view, that's really boring. And every day we do this all the time. But when you sit down and try to scratch your head about what's going on there and what you're saying, it's really weird because isn't the whole point of making a general statement that if there's a counterexample, it's false. And like, how could you even be saying anything if there can be counterexamples, but it's still true. That just seems crazy. And yet it's super commonplace. So there's like a little bit of a philosophical puzzle as to what's happening when you say stuff like birds fly. Right. So, I mean, it seems like on a
0: certain level, the statement birds fly is like literally not true. And yet we clearly understand what it means and it does communicative work. How does it do that? And like, how do we know whether a, a generic statement is true or false or is meaningful or not meaningful? I mean, is there like a model or a way of understanding what's going on?
1: Yes. Uh, So now whether there's a model that actually works is another question, (laughs) but lots of people are trying to figure out what exactly is going on with statements like this. Uh, One thing I want to mention quickly is that, so you sort of suggested just now that maybe birds fly is literally false. Uh, so maybe it's like metaphorically true or something, or maybe it's um, something else. Like, Or maybe it's loose talk. It's like loosely true, but literally it's false. And I just want to mention that that's one possible explanation of what's happening with generic statements. Uh, but you could also try to explain what's happening with a generic statement by saying it's just literally true. It's just that it doesn't mean every single bird flies. It means something a little bit weaker than every single bird flies. But that is literally true. Um, but certainly, you could also try to explain it as a case of people speaking loosely or metaphorically or something like that. Uh, and th- those are like two different approaches to um, the puzzle.
0: So then, how do people yeah. think about the way that generic statements work? In other words, what kind of theoretical models have, have philosophers of language proposed to think
1: about how generic statements actually function? Right. So the general approach taken in philosophy of language, and I should also say natural language semantics, which is kind of this interdisciplinary field that spans both philosophy and linguistics, uh, the standard approach there is to use the tools of mathematical logic to understand what an English or a French or a Hungarian or whatever language you're looking at, what, what one of those sentences means. because. Um, the tools of mathematical logic are useful for being super precise about meaning. You don't have to uh, lean on any wishy-washy, squishy, uh, in- different intuitions people might have in different contexts about what, what something means. You can work with um, you can work with a more precise toolkit. And of course, this is going to be tricky with something like a generic statement because when you're in the messy world of a human language things don't always seem to be as precise as they are in a, a formal mathematical logic computer language type language but the game is to try to explain what's happening in a human language as just a really complicated you know messy but still ultimately at a low level precise computer language type thing uh, but that that would be the general framework that uh, people choose to Uh, Used to analyze languages if you have any computer programmer listeners i would actually draw an analogy to compiling actually compiling a computer language so uh, what happens when a compiler reads in a statement of a computer programming language is it first parses the statement that is to say it tries to figure out uh, how the user constructed the statement and then it tries to assign a meaning to the statement i.e i don't know whatever set the variable to this value and then incremented or whatever. And that's pretty much the same way that linguists and philosophers of language approach something like English. It's almost like it's a really, really, really complicated, hairy version of like Python or something. In
0: your project, you're talking about generic statements in relation to groups of people and specifically how and why generic statements might be offensive. So so I mean how does that work and how does the sort of linguistic theory help us or philosophy of language help us understand sort of or break down the nature of offensiveness in language.
1: Not everybody agrees with this, but My position is you have to take a stand on what generic statements generally mean of like what you're saying when you say something like birds fly or bears hibernate in the winter or statements like that. You have to have a somewhat worked out view of what those statements mean in order to explain why the ones about groups of people are or are not offensive. And I think the basic reason for that is that an offensive generalization about a group of people, if it's offensive, has to be offensive just precisely because of what you're saying about the group of people. That's the type of case I'm interested in. I should mention I'm, like at least in this paper, not looking at generic statements that are offensive because they have like a racial or ethnic slur in them, because that's really a different phenomenon. I have a different... I've, I've done different work on that. Uh, that's just like you stick a slur into any old sentence and it instantly gets offensive. But there's another kind of class of morally, politically offensive statements about groups of people that are offensive precisely because of what you're saying. So I think this is a case where the kind of linguists' questions about what you're saying when you say one of these things interact with the moral and political questions, because the reason the offensive ones are offensive is precisely because of what the person is saying using them. So what are our options then from...
0: A sort of philosophy of language standpoint in relation to thinking about how generic statements work. I mean, are there multiple different ways of kind of conceptualizing what they are and what they do? And how should we then think about what's happening when people engage in making generic statements and the way that we're going to evaluate them as statements and as ways of conveying meaning?
1: Yeah. So, There are many different theories that are on the market, like any topic in academic literature. There's infinitely many papers and books on uh, the topic, taking every possible position in logical space on the topic. And generics are no exception. There's been a literature on them, not so much in philosophy, but especially in linguistics, cognitive science, and psychology, and computer science for about 40 years. Uh, The philosophy part—philosophy's intervention in that literature is more recent. But anyway, there's been an academic literature on this— It's super vast for such a long period of time. There are just so many theories. So maybe what I'll do is I'll mention a couple different ways you might think about what's happening in a generic statement. And then I'll say what general category my approach falls into. So one option is one you just mentioned. You mentioned the uh, kind of like loose talk theory, or you might call it the metaphor theory of generic statements. When I say birds fly, I'm like not speaking literally, literally it's false because there are some birds that don't fly. But in context, maybe I'm suggesting metaphorically something else, or, I'm, or I'm, I'm implicitly saying something else, and that thing is true. So let's call that, let's just call that like a, a loose talk approach. That's one approach. Another type of approach is to try to find another kind of statement that people make in whatever, you know, any of the languages we're looking at English, Japanese, Chinese, French that means the same thing. And then if we find another type of statement that means basically exactly the same thing, that's a way to clarify what a generic statement means. So, for example, this ends up not working, and we could talk about why if people are interested. But if it turned out that birds fly was exactly synonymous with most birds fly, which seems initially plausible, that would be... An approach to understanding what birds fly means, because we have lots of theories about what most means, you know, probably means something roughly like more than half. So, and you can like mathematically define what more than half means, at least if you're looking at finite quantities, (laughs) you can do with infinite too, but that's anyway, that's a rabbit hole. (laughs) So yeah, anyway, that would be one way of explaining what birds fly means. You'd be kind of reducing it to another type of statement. And that, that exact example turns out not to work, but there might be other options. You might try to reduce generic statements to, like, majority statements or, um, or some other kind of thing. Another, thing that fall, another approach that falls in that category would be, like, a normality theory. So maybe birds fly it is just shorthand for saying every normal bird flies. And the penguins and the emus and the whatever, they're somehow abnormal. And that's why they're permissible exceptions. Another approach that people have taken is to use the apparatus of probability statistics to analyze generic statements. So, you know, I'll just take one random example. You might think that birds fly means for every entity, if it's a bird, that raises the probability that it's going to fly. So something like that. You could try to, like, uh, cash out what these types of statements mean using probability language and we have also very we have mathematical theories of probability that are super well studied that we can you know if we can make this work we can plug our count of generics kind of into those and that that's potentially cool if that works there's also more minimal views about what a generic statement is saying so it could just be uh, one view that's out there is that when you say birds fly you're kind of um you're, you're basically just saying, like, some proportion of birds fly, and you're leaving it open to context to fill in what the proportion is. In some contexts, a high proportion will be supplied, and in other contexts, a lower proportion will be supplied. And so with the literal meaning of birds fly is pretty underspecified. But in a particular context, some percentage thresholds become more salient than others, and that's what explains the different things, uh, the, the different um, proportions of, uh, of, you know, uh, things that might have to have the property in order for the statement to be true, et cetera, et cetera. So, OK, as with any academic topic, there's like a million views out there. And I'll just mention that the view that I favor, although this is, of course, actively under debate, I would classify as a kind of normality theory. So I think that birds fly more or less means there's a, a normal way for birds to be and part of that normal way for birds to be uh, is to fly a metaphor i like to use for this is that of a blueprint so there's like a blueprint for being a bird and part of the blueprint for being a bird is to fly and then the exceptions to the exceptions to the statement are going to be animals that are birds but uh, which for some reason, maybe due to you know intervening circumstances or some kind of accident, are going to end up not totally following their blueprint. So totally following your blueprint isn't uh, absolutely required. It's not guaranteed. Maybe it happens like, uh, Aristotle would say it happens, quote unquote, for the most part. <laughs> uh, but it doesn't happen across the board because we can't predict in advance what weird accidents are going to interfere with uh, causal mechanisms that are happening in the world. So I would classify my view about what Birds fly means as a normality theory, but a normality theory, as it were, that's at the kind level. So it's about what's normal for bird kind, as it were, uh, not what about what's normal for an individual bird. Now, anyway, there's lots of cans of worms to get into there, but that's the rough outline.
0: It seems like that's a slightly stronger claim than the "most birds fly" claim, in the sense that it's not de- it's not depending on the majority. It's it's sort of saying that this is a a robust category to which there might be some exceptions.
1: Yeah, this is an interesting philosophical territory. So a normality theory falls under the category that logicians call intentional or modal. That is to say, it's the kind of uh, meaning that you would try to capture using a modal logic rather than uh, classical logic. And okay, what does all this jargon mean? So intuitively... That kind of modal meaning or intentional meaning is looking not just at actual circumstances, but at ideal circumstances. So let's look at all the different possible ways the world could be and think about which of those, all all those different possible ways the world could be, which is the ideal. And logics that um, do that, that go outside of actual circumstances and look at merely possible hypothetical circumstances, behave very differently from logics that just look at what's actually the case empirically right now in the, in the world currently. So it's a little hard. So your question was very interesting about whether it's logically weaker or stronger than most. Um, it's a little hard to situate that way because most would just be an extensional statement. Most birds fly. That would just be a statement about the actual world currently right now. Like if we traveled around and looked at all the birds, checked if they flied. Uh, whereas a statement about what's normal for birds is not just going to think about, or it's not just going to consider what's actually the case in the observable empirical world about birds. It's going to look at, or it's going to consider other possible ways things could have gone for birds and alternate circumstances that didn't obtain.
0: Well, let's, let's move on to talk about your work on generic statements in... In relation to groups of people. So just to clarify, like, what exactly would that mean? And why is this a question that would raise concerns about the potential for offensiveness or um, generic statements being troubling?
1: So, okay, so we were just talking about generic statements in the abstract about any old thing. But. A lot of the generic statements that we use in everyday situations are generic statements about groups of people. And we don't always call them generic statements, but that's what they are. They're exactly the same kind of thing as birds fly. So some, I think, hopefully familiar sounding examples that I have on a list I wrote up here would be like, Dutch people love bikes. That's something you might say to somebody who's about to travel to the Netherlands. Australian people curse a lot. Now, I'm not taking a stand on whether that's actually true, but that is something that you hear people say about other groups of people. Australian people curse a lot. Uh, Christians value monogamy. Scandinavians are tall. So anyway, it's a it's a general statement about a group of people that takes this form, you know, like A's or B, like somethings or something. Uh, so Scandinavians are tall. Australian people are profanity utterers, etc., etc. Et There's a lot of interest, I think, in popular culture about whether you should ever make a statement like this. Should you ever talk about a group of people? or is that somehow not cool? And that's a topic in ethics that I think connects up in interesting ways to the philosophy of language literature on generics and you know where these kind of two areas of philosophy would really potentially benefit from talking to each other.
0: So it sounds like the examples that you give that you've given are largely unproblematic whether it turns out that they happen to be true or false. What are reasons that we should be concerned about these kinds of statements? And why, if at all, should those concerns lead us to think that making generic statements of this kind might be sort of universally troubling?
1: Yeah, so I'll give an example. Um, I want to make it clear that I'm not uttering this example. In fact, I don't think it's something that one should believe or utter. It's not something I would recommend either believing or uttering. But this is an example that's sometimes used in the literature. So the example is the statement, Muslims are terrorists, which, again, I do not endorse. But anyway, this is something you sometimes hear, some people say, and which many of us, perhaps most of us, think is totally inappropriate to utter. Uh, We think it's furthering a pernicious stereotype about a disenfranchised group in the U.S. And we think it's bad to do that. And we think that saying stuff like this participates in that, in a a political endeavor that we don't want to get behind. So anyway, that's one example of, I think, a very hot button generic statement where, uh, yeah, we feel it's really morally problematic to just go around saying stuff like that. And you can probably imagine very similar examples about other minority groups.
0: So to the extent we think that those kinds of generic statements about groups or people are troubling... Why shouldn't that lead us to think that all generic statements about groups of people are equally troubling? I mean, should should our concerns about that statement lead us to be equally concerned about statements like Dutch people like bikes?
1: Yeah, I don't think so. Um, you might want to get a second opinion on that from a Dutch person. But every Dutch person I've asked about it thinks, yeah, that's just true. We love bikes. What's the big deal? Not offensive at all. But I think it's quite common to have a case like the terrorist example in mind and kind of generalize outward from there and think, ah no, this is really an iffy kind of statement it's that that one definitely it isn't cool to go around saying and maybe we should just to be safe we should like never say any of these types of statements. they're just problematic and that view I think is fairly widely held um it's you I come across it all the time, for example my students uh, my my freshmen come in to my humanities core class, basically having learned that that's the case. You should never make blanket statements about groups of people. So I think, you know, there's enough skittishness around examples like that, that there's a strong temptation to say, whoa there, let's just never do this. But it seems to me that's a mistake. There's lots of ways of seeing how it's a mistake. But here's just a very, like, very, very simple kind of like counterexample to the idea that every statement that begins with the word Muslims is offensive I think the statement, Muslims believe that there is exactly one God, is not offensive. In fact, it's completely true. It's part of the definition of, or it's, you know, one of the defining characteristics of Islam, that there is exactly one God. And I would be very surprised, again, you know, get your second and third opinions about this from actual Muslims. But I would be very surprised, personally, if any Muslim were offended by a flat, descriptive statement about the tenets of their religion, like that. So just that Type of example i think is enough to show that just because a statement begins with the word muslims that doesn't necessarily mean it's offensive so it sounds like
0: there might be some circumstances where generic statements about groups of people would be offensive and other generic statements where they would be neutral or unproblematic are there reasons to think that in some circumstances generic statements about groups of people would be positive or useful I mean it seems like generic statements are a linguistic tool that we use very extensively in other contexts and so I wonder whether that might not suggest that in this context there might be areas where it could be useful in a similar way
1: yeah, I think some of the examples we opened with are maybe examples of that. So Dutch people love bikes. Uh, if you're completely new to the culture in the Netherlands, that could be very useful information. A very useful piece of information to know going in there. You want to go in there, you know, I don't know, not talking a lot of trash about bikes or <laughs> I don't know, <laughs> <you> know <laughs> not planning to drive your car everywhere. Or I don't know, maybe maybe you maybe you do want to plan to drive your car everywhere. But in any event, you want to take into account the information. Uh, about the relevant cultural facts. And that can be very useful. I mean, there's a reason we crack open a guidebook before going to a country and cram our heads with statements like these is because we find it useful for navigating the culture of the place we're going to. So I think that's one type of example. Uh, Another type of example that's very interesting to me uh, was raised in a 2017 paper by Jennifer Saul. And she gives the example of sort of uh, social justice activism generic statements that are trying to describe uh, a systemic problem raise awareness about a systemic problem. So for example, you know, imagine I'm a female software engineer uh, at one of the big tech companies and I experience a lot of sexism. As indeed many female software engineers today are experiencing a lot of sexism at big tech companies. I mean, you know, getting better but it's still an issue. Well, I might want to raise consciousness about this phenomenon by saying things like software engineers are sexist or software engineers at XYZ company are sexist or male software engineers are sexist or whatever, whatever the example is, it might actually be a positive contribution to some kind of social or political organizing to make that type of statement. Interestingly, there could be some people who might find that offensive. So maybe there's like a, you know, hashtag not all software engineers lobby or something who would be like, no, 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 actually, whatever, whatever software engineers are totally feminist, and this is besmirching our good name. And blah, blah, blah. I mean, I, I kinda, I, I'm inclined to think the statement is accurate and fine, but whatever. There might be somebody who takes umbrage at that. But even somebody who takes umbrage at a statement like that, I think, can very readily plug in in their minds some other example of the same type of thing. Maybe, if, uh, maybe an example about uh, systemic racism in Jim Crow South in, in America or something like that. There's always going to be examples of um, consciousness raising and social justice movements that involve describing a systematic problem, a systematic social problem, using a generic statement about the group of people who are, you know, the oppressors. So I think Jennifer Saul there has raised a very interesting other type of uh, case where it can actually have a, you know, arguably a morally positive effect to uh, use a generic statement about a group of people.
0: So if I may, I mean, it sounds like the argument then is that in some circumstances, generic statements about groups of people could be valuable or positive because they state a truth that people don't want to hear whether or not the people in question are offended by the nature of the statement being made.
1: Exactly so, yeah. And I think that's even... I think what you've just shown is that it's an important commitment that you actually are saying something when you utter a generic statement. We do have the intuition that there's this possibility. You could be speaking truth to power, regardless of whether doing so makes people around you uncomfortable, and that could be morally justified. And I think that whole, even being able to envision that scenario, only makes sense if we think that there is sort of like actual, concrete, tangible stuff you're saying when you say something like this.
0: So how then do we identify, A... When a generic statement is offensive, and then B, I guess as a corollary, when that offensiveness makes the statement inappropriate or a statement that should be condemned. In other words, how do we identify both the quality and the context in which we think that statement is not a good statement to make as opposed to a neutral or positive statement to make?
1: Yeah, so I've already hinted at part of the answer to this, which is, I think you have to believe that it's possible for generic statements to be true rather than false, that it's possible that they're saying something substantial, that it's possible to raise evidence for or against them and debate whether, they're, whether a given generic statement is true or false. That all has to be stuff that you can do with generic statements uh, in order for them to be able to be offensive. And the fact that they can be offensive, I think, is a sign of all those things. So... I think there are basically two conditions. And there might be counterexamples. I think there may even be necessary and sufficient conditions. But anyway, there are at the very least two preconditions on a generic statement about a group of people being offensive. And the first one is very simple. It's that the generic statement is false. So I think in all the cases of offensive generic statements, the statement being made about the relevant group of people is not true. And that that's part of what Uh, raises our ire when we hear it said. And then the second condition that I think there is uh, a second condition that I would argue there is on a generic statement being offensive is so it should not just be false, but it should also be widely believed to be true. And so and so be furthering a widely held false belief or be an attempt to further a widely held false belief. So it should tap into some mistaken view that a lot of people have and further that in addition to just being false. Because when you think about it, there's lots of random stuff you could say about any demographic group that's false, that isn't offensive. You know, if I say Muslims love prog rock, that's just a totally random thing. Like if somebody said that to you, you wouldn't think that they were like a, an Islamophobe. You would just think they were deeply confused. So it can't just be that they're false. But I think they have to be false and also be widely believed to be true. And this is what we try to get at with our rhetoric of, well, they're fur- furthering a pernicious stereotype. The pernicious stereotype is, is, I think, you know, getting at the idea that this generic, a lot of people think it's true, and it's really not, and... The, the speaker should know better than to say this false thing that a lot of people think is true.
0: So I think I better understand then why you think our analysis of how generic statements work is important to understanding their offensiveness. But, but I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about how we identify the truth or falsity of a generic statement in this context, or maybe even just how do we know exactly what a generic statement means in order to identify whether or not it's true or false and whether or not it's widely held to be true in order to evaluate its sort of appropriate treatment as an offensive and in an appropriate statement to make.
1: Okay, so... Here's where I think we have to be a little bit careful about something that, about two different things that often get conflated in discussions of generic sentences. So this is going to be a little bit uh, wonky and philosophical, so feel free to grill me on it further if it's not clear. But I think we should draw a distinction between the evidence gathering stuff, like what counts as evidence in favor of a generic, what counts as support for the hypothesis that a generic is true. What counts as disconfirming evidence that a given generic is true? There's all those sets of questions about how do you how do you go out into the world, play detective, and t- determine whether generic is true. Those are questions that philosophers would call epistemological, but it's, it has to do with how you verify whether or not a statement is true, and it's uh, you know presumably something like the scientific method is how you do that. So there's those questions. How do you tell whether a, a generic statement is true? And then there's a separate question, which is, what is the meaning of a generic statement? So what are you saying when you say that birds fly? Versus how do you go out into the world and tell whether birds fly? So I think we want to draw a distinction between those two questions. The question, how do we tell whether birds fly? And what is it for birds to fly? And so too with groups of people. There, I think the question, what are you saying, when you say... Americans love apple pie is a distinct question from how do I go out and tell whether Americans love apple pie? And the answer I favor to how do you go out and tell whether Americans love apple pie is pretty boring. It's basically just sometimes called the problem of induction. So you go out and you observe individual cases. And at a certain point, if your hypothesis is confirmed by enough individual cases, you then make the leap and conclude that the generic is true. So if I go around to American households and I check what's on the menu for dessert, after enough of a critical mass of observations of Americans eating apple pie has happened, I eventually make the determination that the best explanation for what I've observed so far is the hypothesis that Americans love apple pie. Now you might say, wait a minute, I thought we opened by saying generic statements aren't like that you don't you know uh, they're not true in virtue of what's the case in the actual world they're true in virtue of what's the case normally or whatever and that's true but the uh this is just an example of how you go out and tell whether a statement is true being different from what the statement is saying so a statement could be saying something about ideal non-actual situations ideal hypothetical situations it could be about those. But at the end of the day, we can't go out, venture out into hypothetical situations and observe those. We have to just observe the actual world. So the way you verify or tell whether the statement is true is in fact by going out and looking at the actual world and trying to extrapolate from there to this claim about the ideal thing. So yeah, I think just the same way we investigate any other general empirical facts is the way you have to investigate whether a generic statement is true. Go out and observe stuff, in the case of groups of people, it's probably going to involve talking to a lot of people, gathering anecdotal evidence. Maybe you want a mix of qualitative and quantitative evidence, just any kind of evidence you can gather. And after a certain point, it's always going to be a bit of a judgment call, like exactly how much evidence is required to fully support the conclusion. But anyway, at some point, after enough evidence has piled up, we say, yeah, I think this is true. And I think you can basically do that about the, with these statements about groups of people, even though there may not be a um, numerically completely precise cutoff of like exactly how much evidence is required to draw this conclusion. But,
0: but then what about the meaning of the statements? Because that does seem like a different question. When you say Americans love apple pie, I mean, that doesn't necessarily strike me in context as being a statement about what people want to have for dessert so much as a sort of meaning-laden statement about a concept of Americanness.
1: That's true. So one further complication, as though we needed more. There are so many complications we've been wrestling with already. Sigh. One further complication that I've been pretending isn't there is that in practice, when we say stuff to each other, we usually don't mean exactly what we literally said. In context, we often mean something that was just implied. That It's probably somehow related to what we literally said. It probably doesn't have nothing to do with what we literally said. But it's not exactly the same thing as what we literally said. If people are looking for fun reading on this, I think Paul Grice's Logic and Conversation lectures are a really fun read on it. But yes, this is a further bit of messy noise layered on top of all the stuff we've just been looking at that, in general, when you say something to somebody else, you usually tweak the literal meaning of what you actually said a little bit in context so that in context you mean something just a little bit off to the side of what you literally said. And Americans love apple pie in a lot of contexts in which you hear that is probably a case of that. It's probably not somebody, you know, in Portugal advising a tourist to who's coming to America to be prepared to eat a lot of apple pie. It's probably somebody who's drawing on uh you know, you know, Americana tropes or something, Americana mythology, as you were just suggesting. So maybe the um maybe the meaning and context of Americans love apple pie isn't literally Americans love apple pie. Maybe it's Americans value unpretentious, homegrown family values, pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps, all the stuff we think apple pie represents, whatever that is.
0: So when we think about the offensiveness, then, of generic statements, should we think? Should we be thinking about them in terms of their kind of literal linguistic meaning? Or should we be thinking about them in terms of their contextual meaning in order to understand whether or not they would be offensive in a way that we would be troubled by?
1: Right. So it's probably not going to surprise you to hear that I have sort of a two-stage view about this, just like I have a two-stage view about... How to understand when they're offensive. You have to figure out what's going on with the literal meaning before you can figure out why they're offensive. Uh, I also have sort of a two-stage view about implied meaning. So I think implied meanings are derived in context from the literal meaning, and the literal meaning is sort of a starting point. And the implied meaning can eventually get very far from the literal meaning, but the literal meaning is still a starting point. So in order to uh, so and and the the basic idea from that paper I alluded to by Paul Grice is you start with the literal meaning and then you bring in background knowledge about the speaker and the addressee. You bring in background knowledge about their lives, how they both got here, and crucially what they're doing in the moment. And you factor all that knowledge in to see what what slight variation on what was literally said best fits your knowledge of what you're both doing and the assumption that the person you're talking to isn't just messing with you. Um, So he has these like maxims of conversation which are basically shorthand for let's assume the person I'm talking to isn't messing with me. (laughs) So in the case of offensive generic statements do we worry about the literal meaning? Do we worry about the implied meaning? At the end of the day the thing you actually mean in context is the implied meaning you don't really mean the literal meaning when the implied meaning diverges from it. So at the end of the day, it's the implied meaning that's going to get to be either offensive or non-offensive. But in order to figure out how the implied meaning is derived in context, you need to tell a story about that in terms of the literal meaning. So I think you have to factor both in. But at the end of the day, it's going to be what you actually meant in context that's either offensive or not. So so Matt, I guess in,
0: in closing, I wonder if you could reflect a little bit on how this Framework for thinking about generic statements in the context of talking about groups of people helps us better identify whether and when we think particular kinds of statements should be disapproved or approved.
1: Well, one positive effect of this discussion, I think, we can see already in um, Jennifer Saul's counterexample. So at least in a lot of quarters, the received wisdom on generic statements about groups of people is never utter them. But just by thinking about a couple more cases other than the ones we're used to thinking about, we've already seen that there is a positive and productive role that they can play in furthering the political aims we maybe want to further. So that's a positive consequence. Uh, I think our general theoretical views about what you should or shouldn't do and what's politically offensive or inoffensive to do, uh, we want to try to have those tracked the facts about what actually is offensive. Uh, So insofar as we have more accurate general views about that stuff, that helps us, I think, be better conversational partners and helps us better negotiate with each other when there is a political disagreement. And there's also sort of like a... There's implications of this for the practice of morally blaming each other and morally penalizing each other. If you blame and penalize and punish somebody for doing something bad... Which we can think about, like, what we think about those practices, you know, whether we whether we approve them or not. But let's assume that everybody does that. If you're going to engage in those practices, it seems to me that, you know, if you're, so if you're going to blame somebody for doing something wrong, it seems to me that you're under an obligation to have a pretty rigorous understanding of why the thing they did was wrong, according to you. So... And this is something we, we're happy to do in lots of um, I think, you know legal situations, and it's also happy something it's also something that ethicists are very happy to do. So this is just a territory in making statements about groups of people where we haven't thought that much about when is it bad and why is it bad, when it's bad, despite the fact that these are moves that we have to make in the conversations we want to have in order to resolve you know any uh, uh, sort of political conflicts that might arise. Uh, especially conflicts to do with some sort of political oppression. So I think this line of research is, of course, it's very intrinsically interesting, and you can get lost in the logical weeds, the formal abstract mathy weeds, uh, till the cows come home. Uh, but I think it's also a, 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 a socially important line of research you know, that potentially can really help clarify disagreements and discussions we're having and, uh, and make negotiating politically, politically tense moments a lot smoother. which which at least I would argue is important.
0: Yeah, I mean, it seems like generic statements create the potential for a lot of ambiguity or misunderstanding because they draw so heavily on shared social contexts or potentially lack thereof in terms of generating meaning and the kind of meaning that they generate, and so it, it seems like one kind of counter reaction to them in the kind of context of talking about social groups is that you know they they create this potential for misunderstanding, and yet the fact that we rely on them so heavily in so many different contexts suggests that our discourse might be impoverished if we didn't have access to them in an important social and political context in which we want people to engage in discussion, but just don't want that discussion to be unproductive.
1: Yeah, I totally agree with that. And one thing I wanted to mention about the possibility of miscommunication is, I think there's a tendency to think of communication as this like all or nothing thing. Like I have my one chance to relay my thought to the other person. And if they don't understand me, that's it. They don't understand me forever. But... In fact, humans have a superpower that maybe isn't celebrated quite as often as I think it should be, which is the the superpower of like repairing a conversational interaction that went wrong. We can rewind and we can clarify. We can ask each other, "Wait a minute, what did you mean?" We can, you know, it's it's like it's almost like navel gazing. It gets a bad rap, but it's kind of our superpower. We can take a step back and have a conversation about the conversation we just had and try to get clear about stuff that was confusing in it and then jump back into the first conversation. And this ability to pause the first conversation we're having and try to go back and fix any uh, mechanical errors that took place in it is, I think, kind of all we need to resolve a big miscommunications that might happen uh, if people are exchanging views about Political issues.
0: Great. Well, thanks so much, Matt. It's been really a pleasure talking to you about this fascinating philosophical problem and its practical implications for how we use different kinds of language in the real world.
1: Thanks so much, Brian. And uh, I want to plug to your listeners that you're going to come on my show uh, in uh, just a few weeks. So, uh, Ipsy Dixit listeners, stay tuned for my interview with Brian on my show, Elucidations.
2: Will it be today? Oh, I don't know. What kind of sandwiches have you got? Let's see. we got bologna. We've grilled cheese and bacon. Hey. Fish cheese and rye. Liverwurst. And sardines. 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 Hey, that sounds good. Have you got those good, firm, meaty sardines? Oh, you mean the ones caught and canned in Maine? Yeah. The only kind we use. Makes a sardine sandwich worth eating. Yeah, I sure hate them when they're all bread. Most of our customers say our sardine sandwiches are the best in town. Oh, no, they're not. Huh? My oh. wife's are. She uses Maine sardines, too. Well, what'll it be today? I don't know. What kind of sandwiches have you got? Well, let's see. We got salami, egg salad, pastrami, ham and cheese, sardines. Yeah, okay, sardines. But don't give me those skinny little ones. I know. You want the ones caught and canned in the state of Maine. Right. right? They're meteor. They sure are. I like to know what I'm eating. Only kind to use for a sandwich. With Maine sardines, you get something to sink your teeth into. A real he-man sandwich. And it's got lots of taste, too. Hey, I'm hungry. Where's my sandwich? One Maine sardine sandwich! Hi, Hank. What kind of sandwiches have you got today? Well, uh, how about a nice sardine sandwich? Sardine. Bacon and egg, grilled cheese, salami. Yeah, yeah, give me sardine on a roll, but make sure I can find the sardines. Every day we go through the same bit, and every day, I gotta tell you, we use Maine sardines. They're meatier, got more flavor. They make the best sardine sandwiches. They are good, yes. Maine sardines. That means they come from the state of Maine, huh? That's right. Sardines caught and canned in the state of Maine. Here, enjoy it. Sure will. Hi, Hank. What kind of sandwiches you got today? Look, mister, why don't you just order a sardine sandwich? Yeah, come to think of it, your sardine sandwiches are really good. Some places you can't even find the sardines in the sandwich, but mm-hmm. here you get a good meaty sandwich, lots of flavor, too. That what you want? Yes, that's because you fellas know to use Maine sardines for sandwiches. Yeah, that's right. That what you want? Those Maine sardines sure make the best sardine sandwiches. Listen, I haven't got all day. You want a sardine sandwich? i tell you what. Give me a sandwich of Maine sardines on rye.